someone who's experienced the Lord's provision in his life. It's really a psalm of confidence, confidence gained from experience, and it's a psalm that the psalmist gives to people who need to hear the message of God's protection. And so it's a psalm that's been given to us to strengthen us, to increase our confidence in God. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, passage of Scripture, and so I invite you to please pay close attention to it. It is the Word of God. So hear it and believe it. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And then God says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for this reminder, this reminder to put our trust in you, this reminder that you care for us in many, many ways. Lord, we have gathered here this morning to hear from you. We've gathered here to have your word applied to our hearts, and we know that this can only be done by your spirit. And so we ask that you would open our ears, that you would soften our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would sustain me by your spirit, that the words that I speak and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. I ask that you would remove from me anything that is not of you, but that you would speak with boldness through this weak jar of clay. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. One of the benefits of being a Christian is knowing that God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, cares for us. He cares about us. One of the purposes of the Bible is to remind us of this fact, and that's one of the main points of this psalm is to remind us of God's protection over us. And the psalmist lists various threats which uh, Israel would have been 
well familiar with, the snare of the fowler, the deadly pestilence, flying arrows. These are physical dangers which would have been readily available to the mind of an Israelite at that time. But we know that the Bible doesn't just speak about material realities, but it it also, also speaks about spiritual realities. And so it speaks not just to material threats, but to spiritual threats. And so a key to proper interpretation of the scriptures is, is knowing what's being spoken of, whether the Bible is talking simply about physical dangers or spiritual dangers. And I submit to you that Psalm 91 is primarily speaking of spiritual rather than material dangers. And I think we can find a key to this psalm actually in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. You can turn there if you'd like or simply listen. But I'm going to be reading from um, from Matthew chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. And this is one of Satan's temptations uh, that he uh, brings to Jesus after the Holy Spirit had led him into the wilderness. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, Satan's quoting Psalm 91. He's quoting verses 11 and 12 here as he tempts Jesus. And Satan's goal on the surface seems pretty straightforward. He wants to tempt Jesus in order to test God. He says to Jesus, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then you can throw yourself off of this temple, and your heavenly Father says that he'll protect you. It says in Psalm 91 that the angels will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And we know that Jesus responds to Satan with the word of God from Deuteronomy 6. He says, it is also written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so the, the temptation, Satan's tactic, really seems straightforward. On the surface, um, Satan's trying to get Jesus to test God, and Jesus is saying, no, God, God says we're not supposed to test him. It seems straightforward, but I'd like to remind you what Genesis 3.1 says about Satan. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. And so I think what Satan's trying to do here is actually more subtle than what meets the naked eye. I think he's really intentionally misapplying Psalm 91 to earthly dangers. He's really taking something that God gave to his people, something that God gave to Jesus to remind him of his spiritual protection, and Satan's trying to take that and to apply it to an earthly danger. And if we if we look at the other threats in the wilderness there, what is it that Satan's trying to tempt Jesus with? It's bread for his hunger, and it's for earthly power over kingdoms. We need to look at this phrase, strike your foot against a stone. It's a strange phrase what does it what does it mean are psalm 91 and matthew chapter 4 really saying that the angels will keep jesus from stubbing his toe if jesus were to actually throw himself off of the temple would the greatest 
threat to him being striking his foot on a rock, a broken ankle? Is that really the greatest concern of someone throwing himself off a temple? I think if we ask those questions, we'll realize that uh, this phrase doesn't actually refer to a physical danger, but a, a spiritual danger. So what does it actually refer to? What does it mean to strike your foot against a stone? What happens when you strike your foot on a stone? You trip. I think this phrase is really referring to a stumbling block, a, a stone of offense. It's really a metaphor for a spiritual threat. To put a stumbling block in front of someone is to cause them to sin. To cause them to disobey the will of God. So I'd like to point out to you the irony here of what Satan's doing in the wilderness. He's really despiritualizing the Word of God. He's despiritualizing Psalm 91, bringing it down to earthly matters in order to be that spiritual threat for Jesus. It's quite cunning, quite subtle. And it's, it's significant for us. It's significant to consider these things because that's just not only how Satan worked with Jesus, but it's, it's how he works against us too. He's constantly trying to draw our attention to the threats in this world. He's trying to draw our attention down from heavenly matters to earthly matters. But Colossians 3 verses 1 through 3 says that if you have been raised with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. And so how? How are we to set our minds on things that are above? A little further in Matthew's Gospel, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is how we are to seek the things that are above. And what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? It means to seek the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is God's rule in our hearts. It's our submission to God based on the fact that He sent His Son into this world to live a perfect life, a life without sin. And He gave Himself on the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserved. And He was placed into a grave. But three days later, God raised Him from the dead. He lifted Him up. He exalted Him, proving that Christ was an acceptable sacrifice to his Father on our behalf, proving that sin and death could not hold Christ in the grave. It could not kill him, ultimately, that what he had done was victorious. And this is what it means to seek the kingdom of God, to seek that reality, to understand that this is the gift that we have been given in this life. And it's an eternal gift that began when we became Christians. And it's the kingdom that we are to live in, even though we're in this fallen world, we are living in a different kingdom. We are not living in a worldly kingdom. And then we're to seek His righteousness. Because of the gospel 
living in our hearts, because of the rule of God over our hearts, we are not to pursue the things of this world, but we're to pursue the righteousness of God. And we can. We couldn't before we were Christians, but we can now that we have been resurrected from dead spiritual lives. We can pursue God's righteousness. We are to put off sin and we are to put on holiness. This is what it means to set our minds on things that are above, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But we face a great adversary in Satan. We face a great enemy, the father of lies, the one who has been deceiving from the beginning, the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden to first turn away from God. And while he's been defeated and he's been bound, he's been let to roam on a short lease right now. And he wants as much as he can to disrupt us. He wants as much as he can to destroy us and to make our lives miserable and to turn us away from God. And if he could ultimately do that to Christians, he would. But we know that he can't. We know that we are safe in God. And God knows this. He knows the adversary that we have in Satan. And so he gives us Psalm 91. He gives us Psalm 91 as a promise, a promise that he will protect us from evil. And he reminds us that he alone can protect us from evil. And that's why in verse 1, he's called the Most High, the Almighty, our refuge and our fortress, because he wants us to remember that in him we are perfectly protected. In verses 3 through 6, we're given a list of threats. It says that we will be delivered from the snare of the fowler. What is the snare of the fowler? If you're like me, you might have to look up the word fowler. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it means a bird hunter. A fowler is somebody who hunts birds. So I think the the snare of the fowler is really a metaphor for our fundamental relationship to Satan. He is a hunter, and we are his prey. And like a hunter, he has one goal, to catch his prey and to kill it. That describes the fundamental relationship we have to the evil one. And he's a skilled hunter. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's far more powerful than we are. He's skilled. He's knowledgeable. He knows us. He knows what makes us tick. He knows how to tempt us. He knows how to lure us into sin. He knows our habits. He knows where we go. He he knows our paths and he knows how to put uh, traps directly in our path and he knows how to conceal them. The scariest part of the fowler's snare is that we can't escape without help. I mean, that's how a trap works. When an animal is truly trapped in a snare that works, is it can't escape. It's doomed without outside help. Verse 3 says that God will deliver you from the fowler's snare. But what else does that imply? It implies that we're caught. That we're caught in the fowler's snare. That's really the the fundamental relationship of mankind 
to Satan. And, and we need to recognize that uh, in Christ, we have ultimately been freed from the fowler's snare, but that we still are at risk of getting trapped in Satan's lies. And we need to know that it's only Christ who can free us from these lies, from these lies of deception. What about the deadly pestilence, the terror of night? Well, it's a metaphor. I think it's a metaphor for sin. Leviticus tells us, it uses uh, all sorts of descriptions to tell us that sin is like a disease. And what do we know about pestilence? We know quite a bit, actually, given the last couple of years, don't we? We know that pestilence can be deadly. We know that it spreads from person to person. We know that like sin, pestilence is difficult to detect. It's even harder to stop. We know that like a terror in the night, it can produce extreme fear. And so if this is the metaphor that the Bible gives for describing the sin in our heart, a deadly pestilence, I wonder, I wonder if you're giving it the attention that it's due. It's very easy for us to see the various sins that crop up in our heart and to think of them as trivial, as normal, as benign. That's not what this passage is telling us about sin. It's telling us that it's, it's deadly and we need to be concerned about it. What about the arrow that flies by day, the destruction that wastes at noonday? I think this is referring to the sin which surrounds us. Now, you don't have to look far in this culture to see blatant sin. And much of it's very obvious. And it would be easy to think that we live in a time where a sin is at an all-time high. But there's nothing new under the sun. We know that Israel committed idol worship during their time. We know that they were engaged with all sorts of adultery and fornication, acts of lewdness. We know that at one point they were perhaps even involved with child sacrifice at other pagan temples. And so we see that sin in culture which surrounds the church is nothing new. And so today as we look around, we see the modern manifestations of, of idol worship. We see uh, how sports teams are exalted above everything else, how fame and fortune is really uh, the end-all be-all, the thing which we should all um, attempt to attain. The sexual immorality is everywhere. Abortion is called good. Well, there's really two dangers which come from the arrow that flies by day, the destruction that wastes at noonday, the sin which surrounds us. Now, the first danger is that we can grow numb to it. We can see it and we cannot really uh, reflect on what it is. When we grow numb to it, we can be tempted to join in in subtle ways. We can affirm it. But I think the other danger is uh, just as important to recognize that we can look at the sin which surrounds us, we can see our culture, and we can despair. 
We can see the state of this nation, and we can go grow weary. We can start to focus on it. We can start to uh, come up with ways to sanctify our culture. And that can be where our mind goes rather than to God. And both of these dangers really have the same effect. What they're doing is they're distracting us from heavenly realities and they're bringing us back down to the world. I think the parable of the sower really brings this out. You know, the parable of the sower was um, the story of the, the sower who goes out with seed and scatters it among different types of grounds and one falls on uh, good soil and it starts to, to spring up and it flourishes and reproduces a hundredfold. But then there's one seed which falls on good soil, the seed being the word of God, and it's received and implanted into the heart and it starts to grow up but it starts to become choked out by thorns. The thorns that choked out the plant which sprouted up, these are the cares in the world, cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and it proves unfruitful. And so we see that it's not just the riches of this world which we need to be concerned about, it's the cares of this world, it's the sins of this world. But God is telling us, don't focus on, On the sins of this world. He doesn't promise to sanctify the world. He promises to sanctify the church. And so we mustn't get distracted. Every day people walk away from Jesus because they find something more important. So God gives us Psalm 91 to remind us that if we abide in him, that we will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at our side, ten thousand at our right hand, but it will not come near us. It says that you will only look with your eyes and see the reward of the wicked. Which begs the question, when you look with your eyes at this world, do you see the reward of the unbeliever? This requires spiritual eyes. It's difficult to see the reward of the unbeliever in this world. And that's because the world wants to convince you of two things. Wants to convince you that true joy is right here and right now apart from God. And it wants to convince you that there's no punishment for sin. See, the world has its own definition of blessed. I wonder how many unbelievers have coffee mugs which read blessed. I wonder if we were to search hashtag blessed on Instagram, what we would find. We'd probably find laughing and joyous people, perhaps people on a beach somewhere in the Caribbean or on a boat. Now, this is what it means to be blessed according to the world, but what does Jesus say it means to be blessed? He says blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who know that what's going on in this world right now is not ultimately where true happiness is. And so my question to you is, are you blessed according to Christ? Or are you blessed according to the world? And if you have a hard time answering this question, I encourage you to consider or continue to to listen Because as we read Psalm 91, 
on some level, we all must wonder, is this psalm actually addressed to me? And these are incredible promises. And the Lord says that, that sin will not come near you. He says that he will protect us from the snare of the fowler, from the arrow which flies by day. But if we look at our lives, we realize we still get caught. We still have sin in our hearts. If these promises are mine, why are these things still happening? I'd like to remind you that this psalm can only be yours in Christ. Have you ever considered that Psalm 91 was his psalm long before it was your psalm? You see, Jesus was an Israelite. He was the most faithful Israelite there was. He's a prototypical Christian, if I may. He was perfectly obedient. And Luke says that he grew in knowledge and wisdom and in favor with God and man. And so as he anticipated his temptations in the wilderness, as he anticipated the betrayal of Judas, as he anticipated crucifixion on a cross, he would have turned to Psalm 91. He would have been reminded that it was God who would deliver him from the snare of the fowler, It was God who would protect him from the deadly pestilence, the sin that surrounded him, the arrows which fly by day. You see, we can make a a mistake. We can assume that it's simply Christ's nature as the Son of God that kept him from sin. And that's a mistake. Because it was absolutely necessary for you and for me that Jesus fulfill the will of his Father as a man. It was absolutely necessary for him to do so in humble reliance upon his Heavenly Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit and out of a perfect love for both of them. And this was necessary for Jesus to earn a righteousness which he didn't need. But to earn a righteousness which we need and which we cannot obtain on our own. It's a righteousness which can only be gained by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And that's why verse 4 says that his faithfulness is our shield and buckler. That God's faithfulness is what will protect us. And so we, as we see our sin in our hearts, as we see the sin in our culture, as we're bombarded with temptation, we can't rely on our own faithfulness. But we must rely on the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of Christ. And so I'd like to conclude this morning by asking a question of application. Yes, we understand that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us through faith in him and that when we go to stand before God, he will declare us innocent because of his righteousness. But the question I have is, are we to believe these promises to be true for ourselves, not just in eternity, but today? Are we to believe that God promises to protect us from sin today? And I think the answer is yes, he does. 
He promises us sanctification. He promises us growth in Christ's likeness. And so the question is, how do we lay hold of these promises? How do we take these promises and live by them? Well, in 2012, Hurricane Sandy was fast approaching the New England coast. Uh, there was a ship in Connecticut called the HMS Bounty. It was a replica of the real HMS Bounty, but it was a pretty incredible ship. And uh, the captain was deciding, trying to decide what to do, whether to stay in port um, or to do something else. And he had a deadline he wanted to make. He needed to be on the West Coast. And so he decided, in order to make this deadline, that he would sail out and around Hurricane Sandy, thereby skirting the storm and reaching his deadline in Florida. Well, the storm took a hard turn. It caught the boat in the storm, and the boat sank. You can read online a 16-page document that the Coast Guard wrote up about what happened. You can read that the pumps were failing, the boat was taking on water, the crew got sick. It was really just a series of really terrible events that led to this ship's sinking. But I submit to you that the ultimate reason that these crew members died, the ultimate reason that this ship went down is because the boat wasn't in port. That the boat had decided to go out into this storm. The boat had not stayed where it would have been safe. These crew members and this captain did not stay where their protection was. Verses 1 and 9 tell us the same thing about our protection from God. Verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 9 says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. And these verses give us the condition for God's protection. You see, His love is unconditional. Once you are His, there is nothing you can do to fall away from His grace. But his protection comes with conditions. You can build a perfect house that will keep out any storm, but if you're in the front yard when the storm comes, you're going to get wet. And you can't blame the house. 1 and 9 tell us that we need to dwell in the Lord for his protection. But how do we do that? In verse 14, God tells us, He says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. See, God wants us to love him. That's why he's created us. He wants us to draw near to him. And so my question this morning is, do you love God? Is God your delight? The greatest threat that we face is not the physical danger in this life. It's not even death that we all must face. But the greatest threat is living a life apart from God. Not just now, but eternally. And the only thing which stands in between us and God is our sin. And God has been 
pleased to remove that from us in Christ. And he promises to protect us from sin now that we might draw near to him in love. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder that you love us and you care for us and you protect us. Thank you for reminding us of what is most important in this life, not that we be free from troubles, not that we be free from discomfort or from illness, but that we be free from sin. Thank you for the reminder that we can only be free from sin in Christ, or that when we see the sin in our life, we can cling to him knowing that it's been forgiven and removed. I ask that you would apply these words to our hearts, that we would be motivated to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. We ask it in Christ. Amen.